0: Benita Beatrice Carter. That was her name. That is her name. In 2020, she would be 61 years old.
1: I want to thank you all for being here today. My name is Jasmine Elise Story. I serve you as the deputy director of the Office of Social Justice and Racial Equity. And before I begin, I want to take time to honor those among us and gone who poured love into Bonita while she was on this earth, her friends, her family, her classmates, her neighbors. I want us all to remember that love was poured into her as she poured love into others, and the absence that that creates deserves our pause and reverence. So, for the family and friends in the audience today, would you please let us know that you are here. Stand clap, raise your hand. We want to honor you. And for those of us here to honor Benita, let's give a moment of silence for those who survived without her there.
0: In October 2019, four decades after Benita Carter died, a few politicians, family members, and friends gathered in front of the store that used to be known as Jerry's in a little community called Kingston, Twenty five blocks east of the city center in Birmingham, Alabama, they came up with a new sign to better tell Bonita's story, to better honor her.
2: That sign was shrouded in black cloth to start, but when the veil fell it showed Miss Carter's picture in black and white, the same one my old colleague Solomon Crenshaw got from her family on that surreal day after her death in nineteen seventy nine. Bonita smiles in the photo, in a crocheted cap that looks like lace. So young. Her graying
0: sisters look on through hugs and tears. The sign reads, Bonita Beatrice Carter was shot and killed by Birmingham Police Officer George Sands, responding to an altercation at Jerry's Convenience Store in the Stockham neighborhood near Kingston. Carter was two blocks from the home she shared with her parents when this tragic shooting occurred. Bonita was a member of Parker Memorial Baptist Church and graduated from C.W. Hayes High School. Her death sparked civil unrest and weeks of protest in the streets of Birmingham. Bonita Carter's death would forever change politics in Birmingham, largely influencing Dr. Richard Arrington to run for mayor and ultimately becoming elected as the first African-American mayor of Birmingham, Alabama. Good morning.
3: Good morning. Good morning. Thank you all for joining us this morning. My name is Uche Bean and I serve as the administrator for the Office of Social Justice and Racial Equity. It is an absolute honor to have you all here. Today, I want to introduce you to my boss and one of my favorite people in the world, Mayor Randall Whitman.
4: Short and sweet introduction. Good morning, everybody. I am very happy to stand before you all this morning in an area that I've, I've known for quite some time. But today, we stand in memory of a woman who would become a martyr for our community. That was 1979. Today is 2019, and all you have to do is look at the current headlines to see that Bonita's heartbreaking story feels all too familiar in today's climate. But if we're being truthful, Bonita's true legacy is that she would be a catalyst for change here in the city of Birmingham. Forty years later, we still mourn Bonita's death. It's a reminder that the evils of racism can bear fatal consequences. But I think as we think about this tragedy, triumph Rose. a stronger and more united Birmingham, one that stands in defiance of its racist past, one that values life of all colors, creeds, religions, sexual orientations, and other affiliations. Bonita Patrice Carter is a name synonymous with hope. And so today we're here to dedicate this sign in her memory. Benita Patrice Carter. Say her name.
2: I'm Roy S. Johnson. And I'm John Archibald. And this is Unjustifiable. Not just the story of Benita Carter, but how attention and intention changed a community. How thoughtless and careless and racist policies brought us to the world we now live in, where the weight of the past sits on all our shoulders
0: and on some of our necks. How it shouldn't require death
2: for a world to respond to injustice. Sometimes it does. We started this whole project asking what it was about Benita Carter that caused such momentous upheaval in her city, a city long known for segregation and brutality and racism. I should say that I, a white guy, started by asking that question. I imagine you, Roy, a black man have had a few thoughts on that.
0: Enough was enough, John. Enough is enough. You actually conceived the idea for this podcast and began your research long before we knew George Floyd, before we knew Ahmaud Arbery or Breonna Taylor, before what seems to be an awakening of sorts for white people in this country who had long been unwilling to see what we, as black people, knew about racial equality, to feel what we felt. Maybe the question now is how the story of Benita Carter can inform and inspire us, all of us, to action. Now, after generations of so-called justified police killings, after having to teach our children, especially our sons, including my son, how to survive an encounter with a police officer, after decades of feeling powerless, feeling unheard, feeling as if our voices didn't matter.
2: It sends uh, chills up my back to think that I'd never had to have that conversation with my kids. And that's something people take for granted.
0: And my son is 26 years old and I still feel that chill whenever he goes out.
2: Catherine Connor grew up outside Birmingham and wrote her doctoral dissertation on the politics of the city.
5: Uh, My name is Catherine Connor. I have a PhD in American history from the University of Alabama. Sorry, I studied that place. (laughs) Sorry. I have a PhD in American history from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Uh, I'm a historical expert in race, capitalism and politics.
2: She was in it up to her elbows, reams of documents, and untold hours of deep academic research and thought. I asked her what we could learn from Benita Carter in the 21st century, and she didn't really hesitate.
0: She went all the way back to April of 1969, ten years before Benita was killed, when a group of prominent black Birmingham citizens wrote a list of 14 points to their white counterparts, imploring them as so-called men of goodwill to use their influence and authority to see the wrongs of the past and present and to, and this is a quote, immediately correct all of the long-standing injustices suffered by the Negro community in metropolitan Birmingham. Bull Connor was
2: gone from Birmingham by then, but he was president of the Alabama Public Service Commission still, and so revered in some parts that in 1971, the Alabama Department of Transportation named a highway for him as an
0: outstanding citizen. A highway outside of Selma, of all places. Talk about a slap in the face. Katherine Connor wants to make it
2: clear that she is not related to Bull Connor. <laughs> who could blame her? <laughs> they spell their names differently and everything.
5: When you grew up in Alabama and in Birmingham at the time, especially with the last name I had, there was always these associations of, oh, are you related to Bull Connor, who unwielded, unleashed violence against um, black protesters in the spring of 1963.
0: Think of 1969, though. Martin Luther King had been dead less than a year when these black civic leaders called for white leaders to see, as King had done from a Birmingham jail in 1963. They called for 14 very specific changes. One, they called for an immediate end to police brutality, immediate at the city, county, and state levels. They called for a citizens review board for better relations between the police and black citizens. They called for black judges and the inclusion of more black people in city government and on policy-making boards. They called for sensitivity training for police officers, for the immediate integration in squad cars, particularly in those patrolling black communities. And there was more. This is Katherine Connor.
5: Its final point, I think, is really kind of telling, and uh, it gets at to something that we've been talking about uh, for the last decade, at least in the last decade, um, in America.
2: She quotes that critical last point here.
5: Finally, we know and we can document the fact that police brutality continues in the Negro community. We also know that there have been few, if any, cases where policemen have been reprimanded, indicted, or convinced for brutality in the black community. It is our considered and corporate judgment that acknowledgement acknowledgment on your part of the fact that police and sheriff department personnel do in fact treat black people with less courtesy and respect and that they do, in fact, use undue physical force in arresting blacks is an essential first step in the process of bringing about an immediate and urgent end to the system of dual treatment of citizens.
0: It's pretty basic, isn't it, John? In Point 14, they were simply asking for courtesy, for respect, acknowledgement. They were making that final point, and perhaps it's really just a starting point, a half century ago, before Neil Armstrong took a giant leap on the moon, before Woodstock, before Benita Carter, long before George Floyd. Why are we still asking?
5: And so they're saying those things 50 years ago. They're saying those things in 1979, 10 years after that statement, they're saying them now. And I feel like just being unable to recognize that that is a truth, that has long been a truth, that white people in power can't recognize that And our systems of power, both economically and politically, don't address that problem. It's something that we are continuing to face and will face until we change those systems. So what can we learn from Benita Carter? Even though you you can have more police who are African-American on a force and you can have a black mayor, that's not gonna solve the problem. That is not going to solve the problem for how, how and why white officers shoot black citizens. It's not going to solve the problem of, of joblessness and unemployment that was affecting neighborhoods like Kingston in 1979. You can have these symbols of change, but they're ne- it's never going to bring about fundamental change unless there's a recognition by those in power that there's an unequal society at play. And we're having that conversation repeatedly.
2: It's worth noting now that many of the things asked for in points 1 through 13 have come to pass in Birmingham and Jefferson County. The mayor's black, the police chief, the district attorney, the sheriff. There have been community policing programs, integration of the force, better training, but other things have happened, too. The population has shifted, and white people fled for the suburbs in the wake of desegregation, and even more after Arrington was elected. There are still major problems with crime and schools and poverty, like they have always been. But the police department is more measured than it was in decades past. But it is clear there's still a lot of work to do on Point 14.
0: You might remember Brian Bergart of FatalEncounters.org in Episode 3. According to his data, there have been 24 intentional use-of-force killings in Birmingham in the 21st century. That's not counting car chases or off-duty crimes. The math is pretty easy, a little more than one police killing a year. That's a pretty dramatic improvement from a historical view. Birmingham requires a little explanation sometimes. Here's Uche Bean
2: again, who introduced Mayor Woodfin a little earlier.
3: You know, it's funny sometimes when I have um, conversations with people that don't live here and they live in areas where the police force makeup is different than Birmingham or even the city's makeup is different than Birmingham. I have to um, almost give them a precursor an understanding as to where we are when I'm talking about the city and who makes up our police force when we have these conversations about police shootings and then I'll bring up the Benita Carter incident and they'll ask me like, what's the difference now? And I'm like, yeah, the police force is different because of the things that were put in place. Are there still issues? Absolutely. Nothing's perfect. Right. But I think that you have to celebrate your wins even if there are some losses, you have to celebrate the wins. And I think that it's a clear difference from 40 years ago.
2: Let me ask you this. It may seem like a weird question, but say you're with your son growing up. Do you feel safer driving through Birmingham than you do in one of the suburbs?
3: Yes. Honestly, I do. And that's only because of experience, not because of a a preconceived thought or what I've heard. Um... I went to Altamont, one of the best schools in in Birmingham. Um, I was one of two black kids that graduated in my class. Before that, I went to Advent. I have been around um, privileged white children my whole life and their families, and they've been kind to me. So I I didn't feel, uh, once a few times, felt, you know, racism. But um, overall... That's who I grew up with. I've been stopped by the police on my way to school in Forest Park. I've been stopped in Mountain Brook a few times, headed to a friend's house, me. I was driving a Volvo most times.
0: Mountain Brook is almost exclusively white, the wealthiest city in Alabama. Forest Park is a wealthy, largely white section of Birmingham.
3: I've been asked to step out of my car on my prom night while we were in Mountain Brook. So, you know, I've had experiences that have been less than kind with police officers outside of Birmingham. My experiences with police officers in Birmingham have not been that way. They've been normal incidents, like, hey, you know, license. But I felt different ways when I... And Forest Park is in Birmingham, but it was just a different neighborhood. And I felt different ways. Like, they didn't believe. I I had a, a cop... Me when I was on my way, I was in Forest Park, and they were asking me where I was going. It's like a Thursday morning, it's like seven o'clock in the morning. I was like, I'm headed to school. They were like, What school? I said, Altamont. They were like, You go to Altamont, questioning me. I was 16.
0: A lot of reform took place in Birmingham, but point 14 remains unfulfilled. Unjustifiable will return right after this.
6: You cannot understand America without understanding the South. It's the fastest growing, youngest, and most diverse part of the country. And Southerners are changing the music we listen to, the movies we watch, the food we eat, and the stories we share. I'm John Hammondtree, host of The Reckon Interview. And each week I sit down and talk with some of the South's most interesting thinkers and creators. We talk about how this place shaped them and how they're reshaping the South. So go ahead and subscribe to The Reckon Interview, available wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Before we left, we were talking about ways Birmingham has addressed policing. We met Brian Burkhardt earlier. He's the guy who founded Fatal Encounters in 2012 to track police killings in a way that hadn't been done before. He collects them and stores them in a database. He's counted 28,000 in the 21st century alone, a thousand more since we talked to him in 2019.
0: Just reading all their names, John, just their names, would take us five or six hours at least. Now, many of them may have done wrong. Many might have been looking for trouble. Though none deserved to be killed as a matter of routine, like so many were in Birmingham in the 1940s and 50s, you never heard most of their names.
4: Michael Anglin, Jr. Javon Young. Ricky Gross. Haynes E. Holloway Lilliston. Kawanza Jamal Beatty. Denzel Boyd. Anonymous. 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 Anonymous.
2: This isn't just about Birmingham or the South. It's epidemic across America for centuries, since slavery, lynching, Jim Crow, since the Black Panthers protested police brutality in the 60s. There's no excuse for not knowing that. Not knowing that aspect of American history, our history. But so many don't. I asked Brian what has
7: changed. If you look at Ferguson, um, the reason these places uh, are historical hot spots is because nothing really, cha- Baltimore, nothing has really changed. Los Angeles, Los Angeles Police Department, Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, and CHP are among the highest um, numbers of deaths in the United States. I, you know, I wasn't around for, for these deaths plainly, um, but in having researched 27,000 of them, uh, I start to question many things about this narrative about things improving in the United States. So, that's. I know it's a really cynical thing to say, but I bet I'm not the only one saying it. Uh, forget improvement for a moment. Do
2: you feel like we're uh,
7: changed at all? I mean, are we going in the wrong direction? Um, I see things that suggest we're going in the wrong direction. Um, I notice that names of officers are withheld more frequently and names of person killed is withheld for longer and longer periods of time and part of that I believe is to put distance between the act um, and the the announcement so that people who might be tempted to you know um, cause disturbances are less likely to because people, get over it, you know, after a certain period of time. So I see, you know, I I do these updates week to week and I notice just creeping up over the years how many are named withheld by police for a longer period of time. And then, because the media has a very short attention span, um, sometimes they just drop out and that person has been, you know, disappeared, you know, In the way that we used to talk about Russia disappearing people, that person's been killed by the government and his name was never released. And so the facts of his or her demise are never released. That person, it's as though they never existed. And that's a really spooky place for a country to be in.
2: If you look at the index cards in Birmingham from the 30s through the 70s and the press clippings that coincide with them, however fawning they may be, they at least name names of the shooters and the victims. It's rare today, Ferguson perhaps being the exception, to imagine a citizen's panel like the one convened for Benita Carter hearing sworn witness testimony in a public forum. Information these days
0: is more often like a state secret. The way Burkhardt sees it, police violence proliferated as the mythology of law enforcement grew. Police shootings went long unquestioned, in part because they were so celebrated by Hollywood and by pop culture.
7: There's a reason it happens. People like to think that it's a bad guy. You know, it's a movie. It's all a movie. You know, these bad guys getting killed by police. You know, it's a good guy shooting a bad guy. The, the other factors, you know, could be squishier, but I, I see in the press all the time um, how these things are not described in real terms, like the officer arrived at the scene. Where, where else do you use the words at the scene, except in movies?
2: I hear the words mm-hmm. of that Todd Schneider song, Tension, right now.
7: After the bad guy
8: killed off all the underdeveloped characters the good guy put a bullet right through his head and the screenwriter stood up and he told us that all the loose ends have been tied he said justice is irrelevant violent problems need violent solutions because in america we like our bad guys dead preferably after some kind of kick-ass car chase or something Tanchant.
2: Man, I love that song. Todd is the poet laureate of me. So for decades, cops pointed to Benita Carter and shrugged and questioned her character. White people suspected she must be a bad guy. They asked why she got in Buster Pickett's car in the first place. But it's a little more complicated. Bean has thoughts about that.
3: You know, and even even with her friends telling her, don't do it, don't do it, come back. Like what would, what would push someone to do that? It's a mindset, the mentality that has been created over years.
2: She can relate.
3: I remember riding in the car um, with my daughter's father um, and he's in the military, right? So he's serving our country still to this day. And we were not even in Alabama, we were in another state. And we were just driving, I mean, doing nothing. We were were just driving down the street. And I remember the police coming down the street, kind of behind us but not really behind us. And then um, they sped past us. They were going somewhere else, right? He pulled over. And I was like, you know, like my heart kind of jumped a little bit. But he pulled over and he kind of, you know, was taken aback a bit. And I was like, are you okay? And he was like, I don't know why I just got scared. That right there showed me that it didn't matter that he served the country. He's never been arrested. He's never been in trouble. You know, he went to, um, to, to Alabama school of fine arts. He's an artist. Okay. And he serves in the military, right? Grew up in a good neighborhood, both parents, and still has some fear of the police and being pulled over and, not being able to explain that to a police officer that may have a a prejudged idea of what a black man is in America.
0: We have so much farther to go, John, trying to heal old wounds, and we're still looking for that elusive point 14.
3: It's very simple. Um, I won't say in every case, but I will say in many cases, there'll there'll be a de-escalation tactic for people that are not black and brown but black and brown people do not get that de-escalation chance. And that split second of a choice of criminalizing a black person versus a white person or a person not of color, I think that's the problem. Um, Unfortunately, there are a lot of factors to that, of course, and it can all be pushed down to systematic racism and how the country was built and how even when we talk about terror lynchings the the reason for lynchings was to protect white women that was the background is the the criminalization and the uh brutality of the black man and how you have to protect you know the 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 town and the residents from the scary black people so we understand the historical reference behind why black people are often criminal criminalized but i think when the victim, the person who cannot speak for themselves, the person who was killed and their story was not allowed to be told, and they get criminalized, I think that's a problem. And we've seen it countless times again.
2: It all goes back so long, and it's undeniable, based on a rational white fear, based on the weaponization of that fear. I remember reading through the letters Mayor David Van received in the aftermath of Benita Carter's death. Catherine Connor sent them to me, actually. One came from an Avondale woman three weeks after George Sands shot Benita. On the side of the letter, written horizontally,
0: it said, They are outsmarting the whites. Wow. That's hard to hear, though not surprising, not one bit. Irrational white fear birthed the legacy of hyper-criminalized black men, of dead black men. Tamir Rice, a young boy criminalized for playing... Trayvon Martin, made into some kind of a thug while the grown man who killed him was depicted as the victim. George Floyd, for allegedly passing a counterfeit $20 bill, cried, I can't breathe, as police officer Derek Charvin's knee crushed his neck for eight minutes, 26 seconds, as he called out his dead mother's name. I wrote a column about Benita
2: Carter recently, and the comments from readers below it were brutal. Uche Bean noticed
3: the comments of even your article and other articles when they were discussing Benita Carter and seeing people literally being, I mean, easily writing, oh, she was a criminal. No one wants to talk about the police officers being killed. Let me make this very clear. There are people that are out here to protect and serve, and they do just that. And we are thankful. And I think people sometimes don't want to thank police officers for going out there and doing duty, right? But- we have to start discussing what the police force was created for. We have to discuss the history of the police force. We have to discuss the tactics that are used when it comes to de-escalating and when it's coming to apprehending people and detaining people. We have to discuss that. If we don't discuss it and be very honest and truthful about the training and about uh the lack of empathy and the lack of understanding the historical reference between black folks and the police, none of this is going to change.
0: We started out by asking why. Why did the police shooting of Bonita Carter make such a powerful impact?
2: Why Bonita Carter? What was it about her that made her special? We asked Brian. I, for one, was a little taken aback by his answer.
7: I think you'll find that... um Aside from the fact that she was a woman, that that is going to be a completely typical case. It just sounds like, you know, many thousands that I've looked at. It's not, it doesn't sound unusual except where it was. I mean, if that had happened in um, Chicago, nothing. If that had happened in Miami, less than Nothing. <laughs> you know? It, so so what, what, what about here made the difference? Your, your history with, with, um, with racial antagonism. So she was just like thousands
2: of other cases and people were able to see them through her. Things
0: began to change because people finally demanded it. Enough was enough, as I said before. After all those bombings, all those beatings and lynchings and shooting, enough was enough in Birmingham in 1979. The death of a 20-year-old who sang in the church choir and laughed at hats through convenience store windows and could not help but smile, even in a world that often did not smile back. In a world that was often ugly, killing Benita Carter was the last straw. Alas, it was not the last straw. There would be more, sadly and tragically. There would be George Floyd... The tragedy that was Benita Carter galvanized and released the pain, grief, and anger black Birmingham had long held inside. It was also a tragedy from which white Birmingham could not look away. It sickened everyone. Well, almost everyone. Let's go back to Uche Bain.
3: Birmingham has a very distinct history in dealing with clear racial strife and their, them dealing with it and being resilient. And by them, I mean the black residents of the city. And then I think it comes to a point. um, Somewhat with life, like you can deal with something up to a point. And then when you decide that you can't do it anymore, that's when the change occurs.
0: Richard Arrington, he had just turned 85, stepped to the microphone at that sign rededication last year. He spoke of the changes in Birmingham changes within the police department and Benita Carter's legacy.
9: For me, a senior citizen, every time I have driven by this site, the Benita Carter tragedy resonates with me. I've thought many times that the city of Birmingham failed Benita. One of our longtime employees with a dubious work record and to whom the city had given the power of arrest and the use of deadly force, and who remained a police officer despite a dozen citizen complaints of abuse, ended up taking Benita's life.
2: But it also changed everything turning the city known for civil wrong, uncivilized wrong, into a civil rights city.
9: A united and oppressed black community and led it to demand and to go to work for freedom. It gave the city its first black mayor, which has been followed by, I believe, four more black mayors. It changed the city's labor force. At the time that Benita Carter the Benita Carter incident occurred, only 12% of the employees in the city of Birmingham were black. And they were doing important things, but most of them were cleaning the halls and picking up the garbage and working the streets. We had at that time one just one black department here since that time where it's been a transformation and you see that today in a dynamic young mayor and city employees here we are all part of the legacy of Benita Carter
0: the killing of Benita Carter was a true moment in time those rare moments must be seized and this one was
9: you know some events, in history, we simply say they attributed it to time. You know, we said, well, it was by time. It was going to happen anyway. I say that sometimes myself. Sometimes people say, well, you know, how, how, how did you do that? man? How did you get to be the mayor? I say, well, you know, it was just time. It was going to happen in time. Well, that's not always true. Time can be so neutral. It's what you do with time that matters, and that is what's important about the Benita Carter incident. Some events in history are attributed to some particular event that took place. I think Birmingham's transition to a better city began with the death of Benita Carter. Thank you.
2: There is much to do with our time
3: I want to say things are changing because I see an acknowledgement and honestly, crazy enough I think that's that's just what we wanted in the beginning you know, don't say you don't see color don't turn a blind eye the blind eye is what Continues the cycle. it feeds it actually, if your refusal to even acknowledge that these things are going on and these inequities exist. If you don't at least acknowledge there's a problem, then you can't even begin to fix it. So I think the first step at this point is acknowledgement. Yes, there's still obvious cases of inequitable treatment of of different cases and different situations that have occurred. But I believe that people are now becoming more aware of that. And that's the only hope that I can have, at least in my generation. And then my hope is that when my children and my children's children are here, that it'll go from just awareness to actual actions. And that's going to take people. Unfortunately, it's going to continue to take tragic events. There's going to be more lives. They're going to be lost. There's casualties in war. And this is war. Um it's a war in my mind of being just and being right and everyone being literally equal, Not, not the fake equal that was created when black people were still slaves, but the actual real equal that everyone is supposed to be equal. At this time, they're not, but my hope is that they will.
2: In the end, we return to the beginning, to that night of tragedy on an early summer evening, and to Jasmine Elise's story's powerful words. They stick with us still.
1: I ask all of those who joined us today to turn to someone near you. And I want you to turn to that person and say, I promise to tell Benita's story. And as you think about this promise, I want you to remember that this is not a promise for this moment. It is a promise that should continue throughout this day. Tell her story throughout this day. Tell her story throughout this year. We are honored, Benita, to be in the presence of your new memory spot, a place to remind us that we are dedicated to honoring you every single day of the year. Thank you all. Thank you for coming here today.
4: Richard Anderson Jackson Nelson Collins James Edward Jenkins Eugene Whitfield Dead Harrison Lee
0: Sam Sims Eddie Lewis John Brown Dead Just like Michael Brown Just like Tamir Rice Just like Breonna Taylor Just like George Floyd and just like Benita Carter
2: I worried once because I did not fully understand the story of Benita Carter and how her death changed a city and a community I worried because I recall the details of her killing incorrectly I know now that one could never understand the anger for Benita Carter or Floyd or Taylor or Rice or anyone else by focusing only on the seconds that led to their deaths. The anger was built over generations. It is justifiable. is a podcast from Reckon Radio. It was written and created by me, John Archibald, and co-hosted by Roy S. Johnson.
6: And it was produced and edited by me, Alexander Ritchie. Additional production by Amy Yerkinen and Marsha Oglesby. Our executive producer is John Hammondtree. Original theme music was written and performed by Thad Sajee, Austin Motlow, David Marsh, and Danny Ray Wilkerson, Jr. Additional music contributed by Jeremy Smith. Special thanks to Todd Snyder for his song, Tension, to the Pollies for their song Jackson. And to Reed Watson, Ben Tenor at Single Lock Records up in the Shoals. Voice acting contributed by R. L. Nave and Barnett Wright. Special thanks to Jim Back, Birmingham Public Library, Ramsey Archibald, R. L. Nave, Jonathan Soboleski, Kelly Scott, Luce Bean, Nathaniel Bagley, Dick Arrington, T.K. Thorne, Richard Mock, Bruce Wright, City of Birmingham, Brian Burkhardt of Fatal Encounters, the friends and family of Benita Carter, Birmingham News, Solomon Crenshaw, and all those people who have worked to make justice more equitable.